Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. DeRay, and welcome to Party of the People. On this episode, we have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who just won the Democratic primary in New York's 14th Congressional District. I knew from the very beginning that trying to operate through the traditional channels and trying to do the things that people, quote unquote, tell you you should do, go to your community board, work your way up, visit your local Democratic club, that as, at least in my backyard, that's a bunch of nonsense. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Before we jump in, I have an announcement. Is that I wrote a book that comes out on September 4th, published by Viking, and it is entitled On the Other Side of Freedom. It is a set of essays that are my reflections on the past four years uh, since the protests began in Ferguson in 2014, and an offering of where I think we go next. It's really the first time that I've written about so many things that I've experienced in the past four years, and I'm excited to share it with you. You can actually pre-order it now at deray.com, D-E-R-A-Y.com. And you can buy a ticket to the tour. I'll be in 16 cities beginning on September the 5th, uh, and you can buy a ticket now. Now, I'm most excited to announce, though, that a portion of all the pre-order sales, up to 20,000 books, is going to go to support the work of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Now, if you don't know the NAACP Legal Defense Fund by name, you definitely know their work because they were founded by Thurgood Marshall almost 80 years ago. And that team actually led the Brown v. Board of Education lawsuit. And since then, they've been involved in almost every significant battle around segregation and civil rights in the country. They are leading on the work of voting rights around the country in Texas and Alabama, around equity in classrooms and school districts. And they're on the front lines of the fight of the Supreme Court nomination. And they need our support now more than ever. So I'm proud to use a portion of the proceeds from the pre-orders to support their work because I know that the fights that they're engaged in today are setting us up for a better future. So go to Dre.com right now and buy your copy of the book for you and your friends. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Mbappe Pogba Alela France Smith <laughs> at Clint Smith the third. Find me in the all cap street. <laughs> Not anymore though. And this is Dre at Dre D R A Y on Twitter. I really am gonna miss your all caps tweets, Clint. For those who somehow were not following Clint on Twitter, you should be for everything that he says. The the most amazing part of this season for me has been Clint's all caps World Cup slash memories about being a young budding soccer star tweets they were fantastic especially the like the throwback picture you put up oh i had to do it of you about to score back when i was i was six and i was i was out here like making moves i was ready um (laughs) the world cup y'all the world cup is is done it is complete the month-long extravaganza that is the most wonderful time 
that we are able to experience every four years has come to an end. And the blackest team left And won. the blackest team <laughs> left. As we've said before, France, uh, I think 15 of their 23 players uh, have roots in, in Africa, West Africa, North Africa. So, um, you know, I think we we can recognize, I, I was saying this uh, a couple of days ago, I think it is important to both interrogate the very real history of imperialism and colonialism mm -hmm. uh, that France has engaged in, that has led to so many uh, African folks moving there in the first place, and Sometimes you just got turned up because so many black people are winning. And so I think we hold these complicated truths together as we always do. Um, but this World Cup was just, it was unreal. Kylian Mbappe, 19. Man, when I was 19, I was eating quesadillas and like strictly. <laughs> like I was just living off of quesadillas and, and uh, not making my 830 classes in college. And now... Um, He's like one of the best players in the world. So it was it was just such a joy. I'm I'm still sort of I'm gonna be be soaking and, and reveling in this for for many weeks to come. It's something like eighty percent of the team was black or brown, and fifty percent are Muslims, right? Yeah, huge amount, huge amount. And so you know, it's one of those things where obviously, you know, the success of this team isn't going to get rid of xenophobia. It's not going to get rid of racism. Um, and I think to operate under any sort of pretense that that it is going to alleviate the very real racial and uh, ethnic tensions that exist in a place like France um, is, is untrue. Right? The same way that like a Golden State Warriors winning, you know, three championships isn't going to stop racist housing segregation in, in Oakland. You can't expect the French soccer team, you know, no matter how black and brown it is to single handedly alleviate, um, you know, a long history of racism because we know that's not how racism works. But in the midst of that, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And shout out to everybody out in the Champs-Élysées uh, for the next, tonight when we are recording and, and the next few days. Um, super happy for y'all. Yeah, Paris is definitely going to be live for many, many nights. And it was cool to see, you know, the World Cup is the largest uh, sporting event in the world, like by far. So, you know, whatever we think in America, because it's a very sort of, uh, sort of basketball, football, and I guess baseball centric uh, country, but like the World Cup is like times a million that uh, for everyone else in the world and increasingly in the U.S. And I think it was incredible to see so many people turn out. And, you know, we saw uh, just France, like Mbappe score from out of the box. Like, and then there were two out of the box goals, weren't there, Clint? Pogba and Mbappe. Yeah, Pogba First and Mbappe. First time in like yeah. in decades, apparently, that that happened in a final. But if I'm being honest, I think Croatia, Croatia actually may have played better in that final, but couldn't finish. Croatia held it down, man. I mean, I don't understand all of the mechanics of soccer. What I do know is that the Carters performed this weekend in Paris, the same weekend that France won the World Cup final. And so my World Cup and your World Cup all came together in one amazing weekend frenzy and i really wish i were in france right now but you know let's talk about straws 
I know a lot of you have been discussing or reading about or perhaps even experiencing straw bans all over the country. People in the environmental protection community have been stalwart about banning plastic straws that have continued to be not only a huge waste, but a huge risk to the environment alongside other single use plastics. So things like plastic bags from grocery stores, Ziploc bags, other things. And we know that those are incredibly damaging to the environment and companies like Starbucks have begun to actually ban plastic straws altogether. I thought, like many people, that this was a great idea, that this would help the environment, that finally corporations were actually doing a little something to help the environment that, let's be clear, corporations do a lot to harm every single day. But I have spent a lot of time this weekend actually reading and listening to and learning from disabled activists and disabled rights activists about this straw band, which seems innocuous to those of us who are temporarily able-bodied, but is actually not if you require a a plastic straw in order to be able to drink. So essentially, um, there are a couple of things that need to be pointed out when we think about this straw ban. So there are lots of people with disabilities who need a straw in order to be able to drink. That straw needs to be single use so that it is sanitary. It needs to be something that doesn't create a choking hazard. And it needs to be positionable so that you can actually place it in such a way that you can drink the substance that you bought. Lots of people just think the ban is what it is. And if you are disabled, you should just bring your own straw. Here's the problem with that. And we've talked about this on the pod before. Solving issues of inequity and oppression should never be the responsibility of the community that is already marginalized. Other people said, well, medical insurers should provide them. If they're medically necessary, then we should either be providing a subsidy or we should be giving these directly to the people who require them. Again, that puts the burden on disabled people to fill out the paperwork, to take the subsidy to the grocery store, to actually buy and come prepared with those things. But on top of that, we know that there are millions in this country who are uninsured including disabled people. Lots of people have talked about different substances like metal, bamboo, glass, silicone, acrylic, paper, or pasta. But again, all of those either provide a choking hazard, an injury risk, they're not positionable, they're costly for the consumer, or they're not safe uh, in high temperatures, which are necessary in order to sanitize reusable straws. So those aren't solutions either. What most people have suggested that I have read from the disability community is to continue to have restaurants and companies buy plastic straws, but only provide them upon request. So instead of automatically giving people straws, instead of automatically putting them in every refill, you just allow people to ask for the straws. That will require that servers and restaurant personnel be trained so that they don't start to question and demean people whose disabilities are not visible. However, this has been the most plausible solution that people in the disability community community have seen. So I want to talk about straws, but I want to talk about much more than straws, because at the end of the day, people shouldn't have to fight this hard to be seen and to be heard. And as a temporarily able-bodied person myself, there were just so many things that I did not consider about something as simple as a straw. And if I'm not thinking about how essential a straw is to some people, What are all of the other things that I'm ignoring? What are all of the other life circumstances and small, seemingly inanimate objects that can make a huge difference in a disabled person's life? So the conclusion really is to follow and listen to and read and learn from disabled activists, disabled people 
when they tell you what they need, they're not standing in opposition to the environment or to the greater good. They are standing up for justice that has to include all of them. The only thing I have to say is that there's a statistic that has been going around that says that people use 500 million straws a day. And that this statistic is based on a survey completed by a nine-year-old in 2011 that has not been verified or proven. Oh. Did he, did he at least win the science fair, though? I mean, shout out to the young minds. But yes, we need to make sure that this is like Sam. <laughs> Reviewed at the science fair. <laughs> but it's been reported as fact in a host of leading publications like the Washington Post and the L.A. Times. And it is a, it's been cited in studies that talk about the importance of the straw ban, this idea oh, that there's man. so many straws being used a day. Uh, but again... Like this is a study that nobody understands, like where the where the data came from. Uh, so people are at a, like even Snopes has a whole article about this study saying that it has not been disproven as much as it has not been proven. And people keep asking, like, well, where did the study come from? And it's like the 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 boy is now sixteen, but the data was from when he was nine, and he said he did phone surveys that got the data. And he's also said that it's been verified by the like by the industry privately, but nobody has had access to those verifications. So we talk on the pod often about the the data being used to make claims. And when I found this out, I was like, we should talk about this 500 million straws a day thing that is a straw man. Oh, a pun. Is it 500 million straws a day? Yeah, 500 million straws a day. Yep. If you Google, if you Google 500 million straws a day, you'll see whole op-eds that are like, it's so bad we waste all this plastic. And you're like, where'd that number come from? questionable where the number came from hey you're listening to pod save the people don't go anywhere there's more to come in the decades before the civil war slavery's grip on america tightened but soon a diverse group of abolitionists both black and white began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved hosted by lindsey graham Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. So my news is a new study called Parenting During Ferguson, Making Sense of White Parents' Silence. And this is by a sociologist, uh, Megan Underhill. And the paper examines the behavior of 40 white middle-class parents during the Ferguson uprising, so from 2014 through 15. And they wanted to figure out to what extent parents were talking to their children about race and racism, as that was the dominant conversation going on in the country uh, during the Ferguson uprising and subsequent protests. And what they find is disheartening, to say the least. They find that most of the parents in the study actually didn't talk to their children at all about racism and and what was going on in Ferguson. 65% of those parents didn't talk about it at all. The remaining parents, all but two of the remaining parents, talked about racism in ways that were colorblind, using a sort of colorblind frame. So basically saying that we shouldn't pay attention to color, we shouldn't pay attention to race, everybody is the same, and you know, as long as you don't pay attention to race, everything's fine. And only two parents of the 40 in the study actually talked about racism, uh, recognizing that this was an issue of uh, power and privilege, and that you know, children have a role to play, not only in recognizing their own privilege, but also in actually paying attention to race and being proactive uh, in helping to dismantle and challenge uh, the beliefs and systems that perpetuate racism. So I bring this to the table because uh, you know, a lot of times we talk about sort of the next generation and sort of how racial attitudes uh, are evolving over time. Uh, and what this shows is that you know, the next generation for, for white folks in, in, in so many white communities, they're not being prepared by their parents to actually be proactive uh, in not only understanding what racism is and how it shows up and impacts black communities and communities of color, but also being proactive in being part of the solution and dismantling and challenging ra- the racist beliefs uh, that perpetuate these inequities in the first place. It's interesting because race and racism is is one of the only spaces in which we feel like, whether it be parents or teachers, people feel like they can't scaffold the conversation. And I've made this point before, but like, you know, when when you're talking to a child about the environment or the importance of conservation, you don't go up to them and say, well, you know, uh, because of rising sea levels and the carbon emissions, the, you know, Bangladesh is going to be underwater within the next 20 years and half of the population is not going to have any food to eat. And you don't say things like that because that's you're not communicating it in a way that's going to be helpful for that child. You're just going to scare the child if you're talking about half of a country being underwater. But, you know, what you say is like it's important to uh, pick up your trash. It's important to recycle. It's important to turn off the faucet when you're brushing your teeth. You you make the conversation about environmentalism age appropriate in a way that 
that allows you to have a different conversation as the child gets older, right? And so similarly with racism, right? You don't go up to somebody, in a six-year-old, and say, oh, well, white supremacy has been an ever-present fixture in the United States since 1619 and will continue to, you know, white be the dominant fixture of American life and politics and there's nothing we can do about it. That's one that's, it's, that's irresponsible to do um, and is not reflective of like how you have a meaningful conversation about race and racism with a child. And what you can do is you say, look, you know, it's important to recognize that people of different backgrounds have different ways of navigating the world and have different histories and have different cultures. And we shouldn't run from that. Well, we should embrace that. And I just think that there are ways for us to have this conversation that uh, with children that are reflective of where they are and also to like give kids more credit. Right. And I think so often we underestimate what kids are exposed to and whether or not they're capable of holding sort of complex ideas within them. And, and I think that we have to believe in in young people's capacity to to understand something that they're they're seeing every single day um and if we're not gonna play a role in helping explain it to them in an intellectually honest way then we're doing them an incredible disservice clint i think that's such an important point and i remember being in st louis during ferguson during the uprising and having several school districts uh, declare that if teachers talked about ferguson in class they'd be suspended and that if students uh, had any kind of protest that they would be suspended. Uh, and I'll never forget um, the former Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, wanting to come to Ferguson. And I got in trouble with some folks because I wanted students to be able to talk to him without superintendent or adult supervision. I wanted them to be able to feel like they could be honest and not give a party line. And the students who were encouraged to talk about these things had very different things to say to him than the students who were threatened for their participation in any kind of protest, even though they knew full well what was happening in their own community. You can't lie to young people. They know what's going on. And to your point, Clint, if we do not educate them in a responsible way, if we do not facilitate responsible and thoughtful conversations for them to explain explore difficult and emotional and complex topics, they're going to learn from someplace else. And we have no control over whether or not those places are teaching them the truth. The other thing I think is important in this study, Sam, that I'm really glad you brought up, is just a reminder that this is the height of privilege. To choose to not talk to your child about racism means that your child will presumably not have to deal with racism in their own life. And we have now seen publicized in multiple ways and things like the P&G campaign around this and on Twitter and in other public conversations what black families refer to as the talk, the talk about racism, the talk about what you do if you're ever pulled over by the police. I had the talk. I know all of you had some version of the talk, probably multiple versions of the talk, depending on where we were going and what phase of life we were in. I had one talk when I became a driver. I had another talk when I went off to college. I had another talk when I moved away from home. Um, and all of them were rooted in this idea that Tanahasi Coates talks about that even if I am not interested in racism, racism is still interested in me. Yeah, I'll just say, you know, as a teacher, and me, Brittany and Clint, we're all teachers and I trained teachers and worked in school systems and, and all that stuff is remember that kids are experiencing it, as, as Brittany said. But also that like there's a sometimes a language has to match their experiences. And I did a talk in a middle school classroom recently around a text that had to do with uh, police killings. And if I had just said, please show me where racism showed up in the book, the sixth graders would have looked at me like, ah, 
that. But when we start talking about like how were how were the black characters treated differently than the white characters, they had it. They had the language. They like understood. They were ready. They like could fight out the idea. Like they actually they knew it. And when I said, like, do you see any part of yourself in the book and where? And, like, it, it was a longer process for sure to build it out because we had to sort of we were making meaning together. There were things that they felt that they had to find the words for and we were sort of searching together. But that's what we do is that we st- we meet them where they are with their experiences and we build the language up. Too often adults have a way of thinking about the world and the language in the world that they use that when kids don't mimic that same language pattern, they think that they don't understand or that they don't have the experiences, and, and the young people, the younger people do. So this is a piece of a news that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with, but but black farmers in the Mid-South region surrounding Memphis recently used science as a means of undercovering this sort of multi-million dollar scheme of essentially putting them out of business and stealing their farmland. And that's what they're alleging in in a lawsuit that's coming up. So Thomas Burrell, who's the president of the Black Farmers and Agriculturists Association, talked about how black farmers were receiving one-tenth of the soybean yields that their white counterparts were, right? And so these aren't aren't white counterparts in a different part of the state. Like these are, are, are farmers who are in like close proximity to so many of these black farmers. And and Burrell had a really fascinating quote where he was talking about, he's like, Mother Nature doesn't discriminate. It doesn't rain on white farms and not on black farms. Insects don't only attack black farmers' land and not white farmers' land. Uh, and so why is it that the the yields are so different for for the black farms as compared to the white farms? And and so the the farmers started to notice this and they took their seeds that they were getting to get tested by some scientists and some experts at Mississippi State University. And the test revealed that the black farmers had not been given quality, quote unquote, certified Stein seeds. Um, and Stein is the company that produces the seeds for which they were paid, right? So they they paid for a specific quality of seed and, and the results for that these experts at the university showed that they were not getting the thing that they were paying for. And, and, and you know, part of the what these folks were saying is they're like, we got, we got fake seeds. And part of what these farmers are alleging is that they paid $90,000 for, for some seeds that essentially were fake, right? That they were receiving that ultimately led to them receiving a 10th of the yield of their white counterparts who got the actual seeds that were of the quality that they had paid for. And, and so this is a lawsuit that has been claimed, you know, it should be stated that Stein seed company is, is refuting these allegations, but, but this is, this, if this is true, this would not be unprecedented by any means. There is a long history of of black farmers being discriminated against at the hands of uh, at the hands of the state, at the hands of the federal government, um, at the hands of local government, and at the hands of corporations. I mean, I think you know, for example, we've talked about in the past how the New Deal and how it was designed with Southern Democrats purposefully making it so that programs wouldn't benefit black farmers, and so these farmers weren't given any of the fertilizer they needed, they weren't given the tools they needed, they weren't given the seeds they needed and it was a purposeful means of having these these farms fail so that the black farmers would have to sell their land to and they would be purchased by uh, by white farmers and it completely changed the landscape the demographic landscape of of farmland in the south um, and across the country honestly and an important piece of context that you have to consider at that time is that you know at the time when the new deal was signed 70 percent of southern black folks were either maids or farm workers and that they were purposefully left out of the benefits of the New Deal, of minimum wage protection, housing mortgages, uh, social security, all of these different things that provided the sort of economic foundation of 
of people moving into the middle class in the 20th century uh, were taken away from these folks and specifically were taken away from farmers. Um, so, so this is super concerning and, and we'll have to keep an eye out for, for this lawsuit. But, but this is in no way unprecedented and would be aligned with uh, a long history of, of racial discrimination against black farmers. Clint, speaking to that, you know, after all of these iterations of theft, really, where folks who had been emancipated following the Civil War uh, were able to accumulate roughly 15 million acres of land across the United States, mostly in the South, uh, so much so that in 1920 there were 925,000 black-owned farms, representing 14% of all farms in the United States. And since then, we have seen uh, through the New Deal, through many of the factors that you talked about, Clinton, and what clearly appears to be happening today, um, that those numbers have dwindled. So today, fewer than 2% uh, of all of the nation's farmers are black, uh, and only 1% of the nation's uh, landowners, uh, agricultural landowners, are black. So from 14% uh, down to about 2% uh, since the 1920s. So things have gotten significantly worse um, in terms of the amount of land uh, and uh, sort of access to that industry black folks have as a result of those policies and as a result of these sort of underhanded tactics that we're seeing uh, happen in Tennessee. The only thing I want to add, because so much important stuff has already been said, is that we need to continue to complicate our narrative of what it means to be a person of color in America, what it means to be black in America. So often the word urban has been treated as synonymous for black. We assume that all black folks live in major cities. We assume that all black folks engage in urban or urbane professions. This even goes down to radio, right? We've got an urban marketplace, we've got urban radio, and then we've got top 40 stations for everyone else. But the truth of the matter is that there are plenty of black folks who live in rural settings. And even with the ways in which black farmers have been intentionally diminished and pushed off of their land, there are still black farmers every single day who are doing their level best, not only to feed their families, but to feed all of our families as well. Um, and so we have to continue to complicate the narrative and the ideas that we have about what it means to be black in America. I'm hopeful that this is a successful lawsuit. There were two lawsuits that were brought at the end of the last century regarding discrimination against black farmers from federal agriculture officials. There was a $1.2 billion settlement that was paid out to about 18,000 farmers. And that was the second round of funding is there were also payments that were given out in 1999 before that. Um, and so I'm hopeful that there's some precedent set here and that we actually see not only the funds going to the people who deserve them, but a, an ending to the kind of discrimination that black farmers have been enduring. And the case, Brittany, that you talked about was rooted in the USDA denying uh, black farmers uh, access to loans, access to capital, access to resources systemically. There's also the Keep Siegel case, which is essentially the same thing for Native American communities. And there is another case with Hispanic farmers who are also discriminated against. So the USDA was really just working for white people, which we knew. And I'm happy that the courts interceded. And what all of the people who benefited from these cases have said is that, like, the money doesn't bring back the land. The money doesn't, like, repair people's lives that were ruined by the loans not being provided. So they couldn't buy, like, equipment. They couldn't buy seeds. Like, none. the money doesn't do anything to that. Uh, but it does help them potentially keep going. And Sam, when you talk about the 14% to 2, it's like, if anything, 14% back then should just grow, right? It should, like, you have land. You can, like, pass the land down on from generation to generation. People can buy more land. They can farm. Uh, and that is not what has happened. So... 
I'm happy you brought this, Clint, because this is a piece of news that people, I think, don't talk about. And I just want to add one quick point. I think that this is, it's really important for folks to understand that this is a part of the very function of how racism operates, right? It's that so much of the discourse over the last several decades has been that black farmers are not intelligent enough to run their own farms, right? That like, oh, they're good enough to be workers, but they're not good enough to have ownership and and control because they don't know the sort of the science of how to plant seeds and, and to grow certain crops. But but that's how racism works. It's that they will give you fake seeds. They will take away the fertilizer for your soil. They won't give you the tools you need. And then when your land fails or your crops fail to yield at the same rate as your white counterparts, people say you're not as smart or you're not as capable of doing the things, right? It is, it is the idea that they are going to steal from you and then say that the results are your fault. And, and that the discourse around farmers, black folks not being smart enough to run their own farms has been so pervasive and, and it flies in the face of everything that we've seen that's happened sort of systemically over the last last century. So my news is about uh, poverty is that the Trump administration, and this is real news. I had to read it 10,000 times to be like, this is a real life. Uh, the Trump administration has said that the war on poverty is over, uh, that there is not really an issue with poverty in the country anymore, and that the United Nations is being dramatic. So the United Nations has reported that about 18.5 million Americans living in poverty in the country and the United States responded and said, no, it's just about 250,000 people living in poverty in the country. You're like, did you really just say that? Where the disagreement comes is that the U.S. delegation, Nikki Haley and crew, are saying that it's only like 3 4% of people in America live in extreme poverty and that the numbers from the U.N. are exaggerated. Now, there is this question about like, what is extreme poverty? And that could be its own podcast uh, episode, which we're not going to do like a super deep dive. But top line around what extreme poverty is, is that the United Nations defines extreme poverty as people living on less than two dollars a day. There are other organizations that define extreme poverty as people living on less than four dollars a day. If you choose any of those, it's way more than 250,000 people. And the U.S. government census defines it as people living on around $12,000 a year. Any of those metrics of extreme poverty are more than 250,000 uh, people. It seems like Nikki Haley and crew have like made up sort of a new metric about extreme poverty that is confusing to anybody who has ever studied poverty metrics, but also is like this interesting reminder that one of the ways that they continue to push these false narratives is they literally just like redefine the terms over and over. And another thing that the Trump administration is doing around poverty that I wanted to bring up is around food stamps is that they have ended one of the biggest vendors uh, that allows for food stamps to be used at a farmer's market. So it's anticipated that at a large number of farmers markets across the country, you will no longer be able to use food stamps, at least in the temporary phase while they uh, switch vendors. Nobody knows why they suddenly ended these vendors. It's not clear, but they are continuing to make it really hard for people who live in any aspect of poverty, and they just deny the presence of poverty out loud. So this reminds me of when I was living in San Francisco. So I lived in the Tenderloin, which is one of the few places left in San Francisco where uh, there are low-income people and people of color, um, particularly black and brown people living there. And I remember that every Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, they had the farmer's market there. And uh, you could use Snap at the farmer's market. And it was one of these, one of the only opportunities to buy uh, fresh produce, fresh fruits and vegetables uh, at 
you know, using Snap, uh, that was accessible in that area, right? Everything else was like a corner store where prices were marked up, where you would exhaust your Snap very easily. Uh, and the farmer's market was that opportunity for, for a lot of folks in the area to, to be able to afford uh, a significant amount of the freshest produce around. And, and knowing that, you know, this administration is taking actions that cut off that opportunity for so many folks uh, will have a direct impact on uh, access to healthy fr uh, fruits and vegetables, healthy foods that we know have an impact on people's, uh, on kids' cognitive devel development that have an impact on uh, families and communities uh, being able to be healthy, being able to, you know, prevent uh, many chronic uh, illnesses and, and other issues. And, you know, all of these things matter tremendously to folks uh, in their everyday lives and communities. And we need to con continue to push back um, on any effort to cut off access to healthy fruits and vegetables, not only here, but also pushing back against what's happening in Congress right now, uh, where they are, I think they've already passed legislation through the House and are considering it in the Senate to cut off uh, access to uh, SNAP for folks who have uh, a range of different convictions, uh, criminal convictions. And so, you know, again, this administration, the Republican Party wants to cut off access to as many people as possible, particularly low-income people and people of color. Um, and that is the new war on poverty, which is a war against the poor. Uh, and we need to be pushing back at every point. You know, this is more of the same from this administration. And I'm glad, DeRay, that you pointed out all of the ways in which this is connected to the patterns that this president and that this administration have continued to show. As we discussed in weeks prior, they're trying to do everything from change the definition of amnesty to send out what they call American harvest boxes. Remember when they tried to swear up and down that this was going to be like a blue apron type of box for people who needed assistance? Um, and we know that that's not true. It is worth us paying very close attention to how this administration keeps trying to redefine the truth. Those are things we just cannot allow to happen. Um, we cannot allow the truth to be redefined in terms of how many people are are low income, how many people are living in poverty, what the state of this nation is. Because if we allow them to redefine the truth, then they can actually redefine the definitions and the standards by which we provide people support and a voice. This is deeply connected to all of the other practices that this administration is engaging in to try to reorganize the country as we know it. And the country already was not serving all people well. Uh, and this is taking things so many steps backwards. Yeah, I don't know how somebody can even begin to make a claim like this when, when like all the data and all of the social science shows us that you know we have 40 million people, the 13 percent of all Americans living in poverty, and that 13 million of those folks are kids, right? And so you know every single day people are are experiencing hunger um, at a staggering rate as a result of. Um, the state of impoverishment they live in. And we also know that 62% of teachers say children in their classrooms are coming to school hungry. We know that children facing hunger are twice as likely to repeat a grade in elementary school. And we know that that hunger is most likely to affect black and Latinx kids um, at twice the rate of their, their white counterparts. And so it is ignoring so much of what we continue to see in front of us. But there was, you know, this is this is par for the course for this administration. But But that doesn't mean that we have to accept it. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. 
America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. And now my conversation with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria, thank you so much for joining us today on Pate of the People. Of course. Thank you for having me. It is an honor to to meet you. I feel like we all know you on the internet because (laughs) of your incredible win and your tweets and your Mm -hmm. interviews. Uh, but it's good to have you. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be here. You know, you did an interview where you said women like me aren't aren't the people who are like meant to run by mm-hmm. so many people. What did you mean by that? I was born in the Bronx. I was born to two parents who were born poor themselves. I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. You know, I was born in a zip code where children don't have access to the resources they need to fully realize their potential you know, present day, I'm working class, I was working in restaurants, I'm not politically connected in terms of electoral politics. I'm an activist. Um, I have really, you know, ambitious political views. And none of those things are supposed to fit this textbook of who is supposed to run and what is supposed to be successful. Now, as an activist, there are a lot of people who would say that, like, you make the best change outside of the system. That, mm-hmm. like, when you go inside the system, you're actually validating mm-hmm. these things that have ruined people's lives and da da da. What do you say to that? Well, I always think that it's not an either or proposition because you have to you have to have that pressure outside of the system to change what's going on. So I don't think that there's an argument that anything is superior to activism, that anything is superior to putting, you know, your body on the line for these issues, calling attention to them. But we also do need to have a system by which we enact these changes. And so for me, I totally understand those grievances because once you do go into the system, there are a whole different set of 
pressures and, and things like that that exist in there. But what other way, you know, we, I think we organize as activists to create cultural change, but also to push legislative change as well. So I, I think it's not necessarily an either or. It is very interesting. I'm kind of like in transition and it's, it is bizarre. What is the transition like? Are, are you in like secret, this is what it's like to be in Congress meetings right now? It's like what is that? It's weird. It, well, first of all, I did not realize how easy it was for the whole world to get your phone number if they really <laughs> wanted it. Like I'm sitting here thinking I'm a nobody and then literally like minutes after the election was called, it felt like every member of Congress had my phone number. Wow. And I was like, how is Andrew Cuomo text messaging me right now? <laughs> wow. You know? And so That's incredible. in terms of that, like it's uh, it's definitely a surreal experience. And then all of, it is very different where it's like all of these folks that you're speaking truth to power on this whole time are now like blowing up your inbox. And your colleagues, they're about to be yeah, your Yeah, they're now your colleagues. Yeah. So that is absolutely a transition. But for me, it's, I'm, for me, it's about not stopping the organizing. And I think that's the biggest mistake that we see elected officials make is that they organize only for their reelection. And then once the chip is in, they put down their clipboards and they stop talking about the issues in a real, and stop organizing around issues. And so we've continued, you know, we do have an election in November, but mm. we have still continued after the primary doing really substantive community meetings, listening sessions and so on. What, uh, when, do, when does it officially begin for you? What's like your first sort of real thing? Oh, I guess the election. So the election okay. is the next big deal, but you, I officially take the oath of office in January. Okay. So it's funny because, you know, in the, in the Bronx and where we are at, people are so used to kind of absentee leadership that they've seen my face and they don't know anybody else. They don't know right. who their actual elected right. official is. <laughs> so they're like, you're my, and you're like. Mm. Yeah, so people are like, oh, you're my congresswoman. And so I'm already being met with constituent service issues. Oh, but I'm also not trying to be like, no, you know, I'm going to pass the buck. So now we have this really interesting organizing challenge right now where we're literally trying to start developing essentially like a service agency. Right before we even have the resources to do that. Now, I don't have to ask you what it was like when you found out because we all saw. <laughs> I got memes. <laughs> we were there. <laughs> but what was it like when you when you went home and it was like just you? Like what was what was that moment? I still feel like I'm having that moment in okay. waves because ever since that crazy moment, it's been really nonstop in a lot of ways. And I still sit down and turn to my family and turn to my loved ones and I'm like, we won? <laughs> 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 it still happens every day. We still kind of say that to each other because it's still, a lot of it is sinking in. And for me, I knew that winning this race was a big deal. I knew that it was going to upend a lot of the order of local politics, of national politics in, in a way. But I did not really anticipate the reaction of, I think, the national emotional reaction that people have had to this race. I did not anticipate this at all. In fact, 
I did very little imagining after 8.59 p.m. on the 26th. <laughs> I did it. You're like... I was not emotionally prepared for losing. I was not emotionally prepared for winning. That's I was just thinking about what I needed to get done to get past that finish line. And so I, I, I guess in whatever cursory kind of imagination I may have had and like the wisps of, of whatever thought that may have escaped after that 8.59 uh, finish line... I was. I had just imagined that there would be like two, three days where the local press would be like, "Wow," and she then won. I would go back to work. <laughs> but that is not that the is case. Not the case. So a lot of that is still, you know, in the process of of me kind of integrating this experience. And before we start talking about policy, I also want to ask, what is it like to be? You know, you talk about this moment that you're reliving mm-hmm. uh, and that you're adjusting to, you have become a celebrity to people. Mm-hmm. You're like a wonderkind in mm-hmm. the party to people. Mm-hmm. How do you manage that? Because the transition was so overnight. It was like you were this person running who people thought could never beat the incumbent. Mm-hmm. Da, da, and now you're like, we all know you. We like saw you. We, yeah. How, how do you manage that? Um, for me, I just try to, it's hard to not change my life too much. Like there's obviously I'm, I'm in I've been in Midtown Manhattan more than I have been in the last two years of my life. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I'm like juice bars. Whoa. You're so funny. Um so that as you know, there's certain aspects where I'm I'm out of the district more than I'd like to be. Hmm. Um, but I also make a really concerted effort to stay in the district too. Yeah. So um for me it's a it's more of a mindful effort to change my life as little as possible. Um, I still go to my bodega in the morning and I still go right back there at night. And they're kind of like totems. Like, you know that, you know, like Inception where they have to have that token that they touch? For me, it's like that for the district. It's like, what are my totems? And I just, you know, it's important for me to go on the subway. It's important for me to go to my bodega. It's important for me to like, you know, just be going out to the park in my neighborhood in the Bronx because that is the real me and that is the real struggle. And, you know, there is this whole like national thing going on, but I consider it a field trip and I always go back home. Got it. And I did see that there was one piece of criticism about like, not really from the Bronx, oh like my that God. sort of, and you know, that I know what it's like to have hit pieces, but I thought <laughs> I'd ask you about that. Since yeah, no, no, I loved it. Um, I think it's so funny because this experience, I don't think that like the alt-right or like the far-right, I feel like they are short-circuiting over this moment. <laughs> like it's like, uh, uh. <laughs> like They're they, like, she did it, she did it, what, what? They're trying these things that I think they always try, their playbook, but it's not working because it's just not true. Right. And I will say that there has been a load of hypocrisy in the Democratic Party. There's a load of hypocrisy sometimes in in we know that there are silver spoon candidates that try to refashion themselves as like the working man. And it's like, give me a break. Um, so I think that's what they tried with me. But the entire time I ran, I told this story. That's why I say that that's why I talk about the zip code a child being born in determining their opportunity and much of their destiny in life because I lived that experience. I was born in the Bronx to a to a three a third generation Bronx family. My mom was born in Puerto Rico. They met, they had me. I was born in the Bronx and then when I was uh when I was a young girl, my mom was looking at 
the educational opportunities available to me in the Bronx in the late 80s and early 90s, which were very limited. And so my whole family pitched in. We got a, a small down payment on a tiny house 30 minutes north. Hmm. And my dad had a business, kept his business in the South Bronx. My whole, you know, my whole root and family was in the Bronx. My aunts, my uncles, my cousins. So I grew up between two worlds. And I told that story on the campaign trail constantly that my life was defined by that 30-minute commute. Hmm. That I knew that when I grew up from a very young age, I had an implicit understanding that certain things were available to me because of my geographic location. And that when I moved my geographic location, many of my opportunities disappeared and vice versa. And I grew up with just living with that injustice, that economic and that social injustice. And I told that story. And, um, you know, I think it's funny. It was an attempted hit piece because nobody was paying attention until election day. Right. But if they were, they would know that this was the narrative the whole time. Like, I've been saying this the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. And how do you explain socialism to people who... Who sort of look at you and they're like, we we like you. We don't understand yeah. what that means, but yeah. we, we we know you say you're about the people. How do you explain that to people? For sure. So the one thing that I always consistently say is that the value for me, my entry point, is that I believe that in a modern, moral, and wealthy society, no person should be too poor to live, and that to me is the guiding value and compass. And when we talk about things like democratic socialism. I don't, when I knock on a door, I don't try to sell people on an ism, an ideology, or even a party. I would knock on people's door and I would tell them the story and I have a conversation. And then at the end, they'd be like, you're a Democrat, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. For me, it's just one of these things where I come at it from a very pragmatic lens. You know, I didn't read a book one day. I was like, oh, I guess I'm a socialist. It was like, it was like, okay, well, I believe in healthcare for all. I believe in education for all. I believe in in housing as a human right. And then if people are going to call me a socialist for believing in those things, like, all right, call me a socialist. Like, I don't give a damn. (laughs) I love it. You've also come out uh, saying abolish ICE. Mm -hmm. And before we talk about that specifically, when we think about Trump, there are a lot of people who feel like the weight of Trump is just so pervasive Mm -hmm. that the best we can do is sort of tread water and hope that we don't drown. Yeah. What do you think about like what we do? How do we you know, organize? How do we have legislators like do their thing in the midst of what seems so pervasive and overwhelming? Well, I think that one of the reasons why our campaign here has captured a lot of people's imagination and why, you know, what I hear a lot is, um, you know, that this election gave a lot of people hope. And for me, it was interesting because I didn't defeat a Republican, you know, to give people that hope. I gave people hope defeating a very powerful Democrat. Mm -hmm. So I found that interesting. But the reason I think that people say that is because we kind of broke all the rules of what people say you should be doing in this time in an authoritarian regime like this one. In that I, it's my belief that the correct response to such a repressive administration is to swing for the fences. Hmm. And that if we're always on the defense, we're just going to keep losing ground. They're going to keep pushing and we're going to keep just kind of blocking and they may not go as fast as they want to go, but they're going to do a slow and steady march 
towards their ends. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm all about the offense. For me, I'm I'm like, what is the most aggressive, ambitious move towards justice that we can propose? And let that be our offense. Let them fight on our turf. I love when Mike Pence was like, we're never going to abolish ICE. I'm like, great, keep saying abolish ICE. Keep, Keep playing on our turf. Because that's the game that we need to play. And I feel like that's the game that we've been losing for a long time. And so I'm totally fine being aggressive. Do you think people are afraid to fight that way? Like swing for the fences? I think some are. Because I think we've kind of been... I think we've been told, especially especially if you identify as a Democrat or a progressive, I think we're used to being told that you have to settle to get what you want. Hmm. That if... that. First of all, we have a bad habit of compromising before we even get to the table. So like, right. as Democrats, we should be saying abolish ICE and then we fight with the Republicans. Right. But instead, we're like, mm, well, we're going to call them fascist, but we're not going to get rid of them, right. which is you know what has happened. Right. And to me... I what I see as what people are thirsty for is not necessarily seeing things as partisan, but seeing that there's a strong fight. Like right now with the Supreme Court pick, come on, like we need to get it together. Like what are you talking about? There's a debate about resisting the Supreme. Are you kidding me? Are <laughs> like, you kidding me? Anti Roe versus Wade, anti uh, you know anti uh, ban on semi automatic assault weapons. He's literally said that presidents shouldn't be indicted. Yes. How is this a debate right now, guys? Like get it together. <laughs> what do you think uh, the future of healthcare will be? Do you think that we can actually get Medicare for all? I, and how would you explain Medicare for all for people? So I think that we can get improved and expanded Medicare for all because we've been doing a lot of organizing around this for the last like five years, to be honest. It didn't just end in 2016 when Bernie Sanders lost the primary. In fact, that was the beginning of the Medicare for all movement in a lot of ways because we secured like an additional 80 to 100 co-sponsors hmm. in uh, in the House on on Medicare for all, on the John Conyers bill. And so so I think that now we've got a lot of people that got pressured into co-sponsoring that bill in the off season, that once we get into this majority, we need strong voices. I hope to be one of those to be like, yo, like, you co-signed here it. Here we go, right. Time, like, let's roll. How do you explain Medicare? When you knock on doors, how do you explain it to people? So for me, I am, I use the full name of the bill, which I think, does half the battle, which is improved and expanded Medicare for all. So when I talk to people and I say, hey, uh, Medicare for all, their first question is, well, I already have really expensive co-pays on Medicare. Um, It doesn't do enough. And so one of the things that we say is, yeah, we improve it because what we're doing is that we're established, we are establishing a single payer system like the rest of the Western modern developed world, um, like Canada, like the UK, like every other nation that has higher life expectancies and higher quality of health than, than we do. And um, what that does is by basically taking our improving our existing Medicare system, which, by the way, U.S. health outcomes are horrible until you hit 65. Hmm. And then they're great. Like our health outcomes, they improve dramatically after a person turns 65 because that's when our seniors start to get covered by Medicare. So what we do is you take the Medicare system, you improve who has access to it. You allow everybody to buy into Medicare. What that does is that it lowers the collective cost and 
it's run non-for-profit. So mm. when it's a non-profit model, you save on costs dramatically. Like New York State, we have a single-payer bill in our state, you know, in case the federal government, which unsurprisingly would take a lot longer right. to roll it out on a federal level, we have a single-payer bill in the state. And what it does is that it creates a single-payer health insurance system for the state of New York, and the projected costs are dramatic because 20%, about 20% of your healthcare costs go to administration and billing. Mm. So you pay 100 bucks to go to the doctor, 20 of those dollars goes to covering the cost of figuring out how much to charge you. Right, which is um, wild. Which is crazy. Right, right. So automatically that bill could have been 80 bucks. <laughs> and, uh, and so what we actually find is that uh, the models for the New York State single payer system is that if you're making a handsome $60,000 a year, your bill will be about 60 bucks a month hmm. with no co-pays. Hmm. Wow. Not too bad, huh? Not too bad. <laughs> that is real. What were the issues uh, that people brought up when you knocked on doors? Well, my district is, one of the things that I love about my district is that I feel like it is a nexus for intersectional economic arguments. Okay. So um, immigration, my district is half immigrant, 50% immigrant. Wow. And so immigration was absolutely a top issue, which is one reason why I took the position of abolish ICE, because I'm fighting for my people out here, and this is what they're asking for. And when we say that the district is half immigrant, it doesn't mean half undocumented. It doesn't mean half non-citizens. We're talking about naturalized U.S. citizens, families of immigrants, children of immigrants. Uh, we have a very strong pro-immigrant culture in New York 14. Um, so immigration was very important. Healthcare, improved and expanded Medicare for all was huge for a lot of people. Tuition-free public college, criminal justice reform. People talk about how my district is half in the Bronx and half in Queens. It also it covers Rikers prison, hmm. Rikers jail rather. It acts like a prison, but it's a, it's a jail right. technically. And so for me, it was very important because despite the fact that the people on Rikers are disenfranchised, I feel a moral responsibility to make sure that we are advocating very strongly for criminal justice reform on a federal level. Um, so those were, I think, some of the, the top issues. And when we think about criminal justice reform, what does that mean to you? Like when you say advocate for a criminal justice reform at the federal mm -hmm. level, what does that look like? Well, I think for me it means listening to some of the folks in the prison abolition movement. Mm. I think that it, it means ending the war on drugs, but it also means reexamining a lot of people who were locked up in that war on drugs. I think that we need to have a conversation about justice uh, in terms of people that were sentenced for decades for nonviolent, sometimes even first-time drug offenses that are still kept up in this system. I think it means building out uh, just transitionary services for people who are reintegrating to their communities. Um, you know, I remember when I was working in a restaurant, there was a, a guy on the line and the line is like sorry the cook line okay, like okay. the kitchen line trying to yeah no it. <laughs> it's that restaurant jargon um and he had just started up and i just started uh you know talking with him he was 25 years old he had just gotten out of kind of just our state our state system and he got locked up when he was 15 years old wow there are so many people like that that get incarcerated through the most formative and important years of their lives. And then 
you get out and you're 25, 26, 28, you're almost 30, and all of those critical keystone experiences uh, aren't, haven't been built into your foundation yet. And so we have really high, in some areas, some people would debate, but in some places we have really high recidivism rates. But the reason for that is because when we don't allow or create systems that help people reintegrate into society, we just create this trap um, of mass incarceration. And that system is built that way deliberately. Have you taken a position either on uh, marijuana legalization or mm-hmm. turnstile jumping? Yes, I'm both. So I believe in the full legalization of marijuana. Um, in terms of turnstile jumping, although it's not a federal issue. Um, it's a New York issue. It is, a, it is very a much issue. a New York issue, and it kind of has implications on broken windows. And, you know, in terms of what the actual infraction, if any, it should be, first of all, I'm supportive of uh, I'm supportive of subsidized metro cards for low-income people. Mm-hmm. That's a huge reason why people jump turnstiles right. is because they can't <laughs> afford to get on them. And especially with how our subway fares have been skyrocketing uh, compared to increases in income. Like just cost of living is out of control. So when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, uh, a subway ride cost like a buck 75. Mm-hmm. And you used, to, you used to be able to get weekly Metro cards, un- weekly unlimiteds. Um, now, I wish you guys could see her face when she said I know, that. I'm like, like my eyes smile. light She's up. Like, weekly unlimited. <laughs> that was like, as a high schooler, I was like, yes. Um, you could do, you could have like weekly unlimiteds. Now, uh, now a subway ride costs 275, but they're already talking about fare increases. And this is just like 10 years. We're talking about doubling, almost doubling the cost of just getting to and from. And you don't have weekly Metro cards anymore, which is important for outer borough communities that have cash flow issues. Cause like coming up with 140 bucks at once or 120 bucks in one blow is harder for a person that's low income that's depending on on just a a flow of funds you can't save that up and go in, in one go um so anyways i believe in subsidized metro cards for low income new yorkers uh and i absolutely absolutely do not believe that a person should be locked up for for jumping a turnstile even if they can't pay bail now, as a woman of color, you have inspired many women, you've inspired many people of color who have never thought of these roles as roles that they could mm-hmm. certainly, potentially not even run for, but certainly not win. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your advice to people listening who are like, I think I want to do what she did? Mm-hmm. I would say organize outside the system. Okay, That's how we won, because I felt that way for a very long time, you know, Years and years ago, I had worked in the constituent office of the late Senator Kennedy in his immigration office. Oh, really? Yeah. How was that? It was, I mean, it was an incredible experience because the people there were so conscientious and committed. Um, It was a really, it was a really amazing experience. But I also was aware of the fact that I was in a place of immense privilege. Mm -hmm. And like, this also felt like a field trip to me. Like, you know, I was like, okay, this is cool. (laughs) But this isn't built (laughs) for me exactly. And when I came back to New York too, it was just like, nah. It was like, this is, there's no way. There's no way. Because the systems aren't built for us. But 
that doesn't mean that we can't make our own. And in a way, it's kind of funny because we did this really ambitious, idealistic thing. But I started out with, I feel like, just a very clear-eyed and warranted cynicism about New York City politics as it is. So I went in, and I didn't even try visiting the Democratic clubs because I knew from the jump, I was like, they're not going to listen to me. They're going to pretend to listen to me. Right. But I, You're going to waste time. Exactly. I'm just going to waste time talking to them, um, li- especially when my opponent was the literal chairman, is technically still the literal chairman of the local Democratic Party. All the Democratic clubs answered to him. So I was like, no. And so uh, I wasn't going to waste my time pretending that this system was built for me. I knew from the very beginning that trying to operate through the traditional channels and trying to do the things that people quote unquote tell you you should do, go to your community board, work your way up, visit your local democratic club, that as, at least in my backyard, that's a bunch of nonsense. Right. And so I was so coming from the background as an educator and an organizer, I decided to pursue an equally Herculean effort, which is to try to convince activists to participate in electoral politics, which I'm sure you know a lot of activists are like, F that. What was your hook? <laughs> what was like the thing that, that got them to do it for you? Well, with you? I think I spent a good six to eight months building a lot of trust. I knew the first answer was going to be no and that I was fine with that first answer being no. But I saw more possibility in connecting with people on issues and connecting with activists Um, And what I did to build that trust was that I demonstrated to activist groups that I was willing to do things that no normal politician was willing to do. Like what? So, I mean, even a very simple one, uh, because I started this race almost a year and a half, two years ago. And it's amazing how much progress we've had in this realm. But, for example, one of the first groups that I worked worked with was Black Lives Matter in New York. And at the time that I started... No politician in New York would ever say Black Lives Matter in public. At that time, it was still like a very controversial thing. And it's almost crazy to think that it was not that long ago that it it was like, because now there's like emoji hashtags on Twitter. And it's like, you don't have to tell me, you know, and it's like, oh, this is like a pop thing now but when I first started it it was it was absolutely not and so for me to be seen out in the streets talking about um talking you know in very plain terms about issues of of uh not just police brutality but the historical institutions of of racism in the United States it was like word (laughs) it's like oh really and then other things like i was willing to participate in anti-gentrification actions Mm. so in new york city and in a lot of cities in the united states a lot of democrats are totally owned by luxury by the luxury real estate developer lobby so when i would show up to actions and literally look at elected incumbents people are like she's crazy people are like this girl is crazy she's crazy and then they're like i <laughs> you know because it really was this kind of activist campaign that people were very people were thirsty for is your family still in your district 
A lot of my extended family is still in my district. Okay. So my mom got priced out in New York City. So she lives in Florida now, literally because okay. she can't afford to live here anymore. Was she here on election day? She was here on election day. Oh, uh, what did she say? Oh, my God. My mom was like... What's her name? My, my mom's name is Blanca. Okay. And uh, my mom was so funny because <laughs> she's so funny. When I first told my mom I was running, I think she thought I was running for like community board <laughs> and you're like congress she's like oh yeah yeah and uh and she was like oh that's cute you know and things slowly started getting more real for my mom okay um but she came in for like the last three days and she looked around saw all this organizing she was like holy cow i love it um and then it was so funny my mom's a school secretary in florida okay and so um we won and the next day was like this total press bonanza so i had left the house and my mom was staying in the apartment and these New York Post reporters came and knocked on the apartment door. <laughs> and my mom calls me up and she's like, I, these reporters, you know, they, they knocked on the door. And I was like, did you, did you say, did you talk to them? And she's like, yeah, I talked to them. <laughs> You're like, no. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> and I love it. It's going to be like your childhood photos, every no, nickname. Dude. So I was like, I was like, mom, did you... <laughs> Did you say anything weird? Did they ask anything bizarre? And she was like, no, no, no. I just, you know, it's fine. Next morning, <laughs> New York Post, Ocasio wants to be president. I and I was like, mom, what did you tell them? It was like on the front page of Drudge Report. It was like, socialist wants to be president. I and I called my mom. I was That's like, funny. mom, you said you didn't tell them anything. Uh, and she was like, I just told them that I always knew my baby I was going to be president. And I was I like, it. So I now I'm like it. feeling all of these like journalist questions and I'm like, no, this is not. And then they don't believe me. I and I'm like, it. oh my and God. And she probably was so proud when she yeah, said she it. She's was. like, my baby is yeah. going to be president. And they're like, Ocasio Cortez, president. Exactly, exactly. That's so I was amazing. like, oh my God, this is a mess. That is great. That's fun. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to see you back when you're in Congress. Yeah, no, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save That People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. Thanks. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo.